Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's guest has done all of that and more. The winner of the Leadville 100 just this past weekend, another amateur runner who was working super hard to get better. And I don't know how much better she can get because she is already at the literal and figurative mountaintop. Jackie Manhart, thank you so much for coming on the show. Matt, thank you for having me. It's a real honor and real pleasure to talk with you today. So we're going to dive into your running background, where it all started, and the progression you've had, and how this was not a linear progression to get to this day at all. But before we get there, I feel like we have to start with the most recent past first, because winning a race like Leadville is just such an amazing thing. Leadville is one of those races where even people who don't follow ultra running have heard of Leadville, right? It's been in a lot of popular culture um, throughout the years and it's captivated a lot of people's imaginations. So when did Leadville pop on your radar as a race that you really wanted to do? Yes, it's true. Leadville, Leadville is super iconic, especially as a Colorado runner. Um, it's a race that I have heard about and dreamed about for many, many years. Um, I really had it on my radar last year when I got, a, um, I had an entry ticket, but instead of doing the race, I got a stress fracture instead. So um, the focus and the buildup has really been for the last two years. But like you said, everybody's heard of Leadville. Um, all runners dream of Leadville. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Now, there's so many ultra races around, and especially where you are, someone who lives in Boulder, um, who trains you know, in the Rockies and just out west. There are so many mountainous courses. What about Leadville specifically was maybe more captivating or other than other races? Or what about it just became like this iconic one for you specifically? Because especially with these hundreds, it's not like you can do these every two or three months. Most people do like maybe one a year maybe two every 18 months or so, right? You have to be kind of picky with, with some of your race selections. So what about it at the end of the day was why you chose this versus other races? Um, I feel like living in Boulder, uh, Leadville is almost our local hundred. Um, you know, even though there are other big hundred mile races in Colorado, they're not necessarily on the front range. So um, Leadville is like the closest to home. Um, it makes it easy to access the course as training ground. Um, and also I felt like the the profile and the nature of the trail would be really well suited to me. The fact that a lot of it is very runnable. Um, and I like runnable terrain. I like running fast. Um, but also sections are very mountainous and technical as well. So I was intrigued by that combination and yeah, above all, I just feel like it's almost, it's almost like a home course. Like I really know the nature of Colorado trails and the nature of those trails out in Leadville. Um, yeah. And that's the kind of stuff I love running on. And then while the trails may seem familiar and you've had a chance to run on them, the elevation profile of this race is insane. Not just the topographical changes, but just how much time you're spending above 10,000 feet. And just not many people in the world live above 10,000 feet. Never mind run above 10,000 feet. And again, you live in Boulder, so that's not quite up there either. So what is that elevation like for, even for someone like you who lives at elevation, what is it like to be above 10,000 feet? And how much of it is individual? Because I've heard different people describe it differently. Um, it is never easy going up to 10,000 feet. Like I don't living at Boulder. I don't know how much of a difference that makes, but anytime I go up to 10,000 feet, 
I'm definitely sucking wind for sure. Um, so for me, I wanted to prioritize getting up high for a little bit of training, but I think also what was really pivotal was just getting into the mindset, um, telling myself that I'm strong at altitude. I feel good at altitude. Um, and when I was out there racing, I was doing my best to just not even think about it. Like everyone who's starting that race is at 10,000 feet. Um, everybody has the same amount of oxygen in the air and go run the race. I love it. Now, we're not going to do a full like race breakdown per se. Like, again, we could spend the next two hours talking about this race. I mean, it took, you know, it took you almost, you know, as everyone knows who runs a 100 mile race, these things take hours and hours and hours. So we're not going to even just dissecting a 21 hour race into two hours. It'd be like quite the condensation. But even then, I think what makes you and your story so interesting, especially for my audience who, you know, they're people like you, they're parents oftentimes they're trying to balance their running with a crazy lifestyle and they have their own goals right maybe it's not to win an iconic race but for them it's it's just as important i think the process that you took to get here i think is is really valuable and interesting so i think part of that i think before we dive into the background is the um just the current training you're doing so could you talk to us just about the evolution of your training over the past couple of years because someone might hear Leadville 100 winner and make assumptions like, oh, they must run 85 miles a week, bare minimum and all of this stuff. And those assumptions are usually correct, but not necessarily in your case. So can you just walk us through your recent training? Yeah, that's it's definitely not true in my case. So um, I have been working with David Roach for a few years and we had started to see a pattern that when I was getting up to training about 70 miles a week consistently, that was leading to injury. So that happened twice, and it was time to completely revamp the approach we were taking. So in the buildup to Leadville, there was more emphasis on low mileage, quality mileage, and then adding in cross-training, which I mostly did on my bike. So um, some of the weeks ended up being about 50 miles of running. Some of the weeks were as low as 30 miles. Um, My biggest week coming into Leadville was 65 miles. And all of that was supplemented with time on the bike. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to share that if that can encourage anybody else to like find the training approach that works for them or works for their body. Like we're all so different and just have confidence in the thing that works for you. I love that message. And it makes so much sense at the same time it can be hard to live that message, right? Because we're aware of what other people are doing, oftentimes for good things, right? We're like, hey, congratulations on doing this, right? Even if you're just supporting your friends and you want to know what they're doing so you can be like in their lives and super upbeat with what they're doing, you can't like all of a sudden sidle that information when you're looking at your own training and be like, oh, I'm a goldfish. I don't remember anything that was happening around me. So as you're aware of what your friends are doing in training or you live in Boulder, so many of your neighbors are doing in training, what was that like for you of not only doing this training that worked for you, but embracing it and being confident in the plan as not merely one that will make sure that you stay healthy, but one that could also lead you to the goals that you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, um, I would say during the training, during the training block, I had confidence in the approach because I was feeling so good. I was really energized. I was feeling strong. Um, but really when it got up to race week and I was seeing these other 
you know, you get caught in the comparison trap of these other women had been training huge miles. Um, I was not confident. Definitely uh, my confidence was punctured. And I started to really doubt like, boy, am I prepared for this? So um, it, it took a really a last minute pep talk from David and from my husband to just say like, look, you've put in the work. It might not look the same as everybody else, but you can trust your fitness. And I think fundamentally for me, it had been really hard in the last few years to get to the starting line of the hundred mile races. Like I was getting injured. And so I knew that if I could get to the starting line healthy, then I had a chance at a good race. So um, knowing that I was showing up healthy, rested, and with a big bucket full of fitness, um, I guess that's how I, I gained confidence in my training. All right. One last question before we go back in time and kind of hear, hear how it all started. David and Megan Roche were super complimentary of you, not only in their email to the entire SWAP team, but also on their podcast, which is one of the most popular running podcasts in the country, and talking about just the, the term that they love to use, the you know shooter shoot and people shooting their shot and like the the basketball analogies, which I which I know and love uh, as a former college basketball player. But what does that mean to you? Because he referenced that you would use that that terminology as well in, in your lead up and in, in that, uh, that pump up conversation. So when it comes to you know shooting your shot or making the most of the day, what does that mean for you from a um, mental prep perspective and in terms of race a execution? Yeah. Well, yeah. First of all, working with David and Megan is amazing. It's exactly as um, fun and up- uplifting as you would imagine it to be. Um, and I just, I love how outrageous and authentic they are. So I, I gain a lot of inspiration from them, um, for sure. But yeah, I remember talking to David the day before the race and, and telling him like, I'm not throwing away my shot. That's where the shooter's shoot came from is like, it's hard to get to this starting line. And here I am, here I am now. And I have this chance and I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it with my whole heart, my whole soul. Um, I'm going to shoot my shot. So I think that was the that was the thinking going into it. I love that. So the idea of like, hey, and maybe this is taking it a step too far, but like the idea of like, hey, I don't know when I'm going to be another starting line. Like yes. why waste an opportunity kind yes. of vibe? Exactly. Because just in these recent months and years, like it had been hard to get to a starting line healthy. And like here I was on the precipice of it and I wasn't going to let that go to waste. That is awesome. Okay, so we've been, we've been kind of intimating and you know circling the block about what uh, some of the, the injury history. Um, we'll kind of dive into that that sort of thing now. So if I I read this before, and if it's not true, please correct me. It seemed like you started off your athletic career as more of a swimmer, and then kind of moved into the running side of things. Could you tell us kind of like what age range that was, and what precipitated uh, that move? I was a swimmer as a as a kid. And then when I got into high school, I was running cross country in the fall and swimming in the spring. And then when I went on to college, I guess I became a runner. Um, I was running cross country and indoor track and outdoor track. So that was kind of a gradual evolution to running. Gotcha. So were you a recruited athlete when you went to school? No, I walked on to a division two team and I was just so grateful that they let me join. Um, but very quickly, I had some success. And um, yeah, it was absolutely a life-changing experience running in college. So really grateful that they let me walk on freshman year. And what was like, what were some of those successes that you had? 
Um, I was an All-American in cross country and in track. Um, Division two. Some success. Oh, <laughs> my God. You're you're so humble. You're an All-American. Like, I had some success. I lo- yeah, Sometimes people come to the show. This is why I have to ask these kind of questions. Sometimes people say that, and it's true. I've had a little success. Okay, fine. And you have someone like you. I'm an All-American. And you make it sound like, hey, I made the... I made the varsity team as a senior. That's how you like you present yeah. the humbleness I, I can get behind. But, you know, it was just like um, those, those years in college, it was such a transformation because I walked on the team as kind of like a so-so runner and then um, just grew so much through those years as an athlete and, you know, ended up having some success. And uh, it, was, it was just a really beautiful transformational um, time in my life. Was it all was it all positives? I mean, I know that there are so many college runners who, you know, the the last day of college, right? Graduation day is like the last day they run, right? At least for a very long time. And it can be one of those things where as exciting as the beginning may be, they leave with kind of a bitter, sour taste in their mouth from the experience. And their running is never quite the same after that for them. Yeah, Matt. No, of course, it was not all positive, man. There was some bad parts. Um, you know, the great parts is when I think about my teammates, like all these dear men and women that I got to run together with through the years, like I still carry them with me. We, I gained so much inspiration from them still today. Um, but the bad part was that, you know, it's just in that culture of female collegiate running and it was very destructive for me. I was way overtrained way underfueled. Um, and by the time I finished, I, I ran my fifth year um, here in Boulder at CU. And by the time I finished here, um, I was completely burnt out and I needed to step away from the sport in a dramatic way, just like sort of to save myself. So um, no, it's definitely not all sunshine and rainbows. Um, but I feel like I was able to bounce back from that low point. All right. Do you mind if we dive into to some of that now? For sure. All right. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about like this, this kind of um, just the nature of your college experience, which you know, we've talked about this on the past on this podcast. And it's something that's just kind of in much more in the popular running culture nowadays. OK, we talked about this offline before. Like, we wonder how much that filters down to like to teenage runners um, as they are choosing a college or when they're in a college. You know, I think for people kind of more in our age bracket, we hear about this so much more, but also people our age are the ones who are saying it. So, so yeah. I wonder, like, am I just in this bubble of this information? So when you were going through that process, when you think about it now, what were some of the things that um, maybe were causes of this sort of thing? And you mentioned two things specifically, you know, the, the destructive eating, as well as the overtraining. And obviously those can be associated. Sometimes they're not, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes like, you know, Sometimes you can can take on a huge amount of training if you're eating enough. And yeah, it's not I'll, just yeah. a training load. It's sometimes it's the fueling side, but but sometimes you can have both. Sometimes you can be overtrained and be under eating. So it doesn't have to be an or situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is that um, it's very seductive in the beginning. If you start um, losing weight, you start running fast and you run really, really well for a while. Um, and then you don't run at all because you're just. Uh, a pile of injuries on the side of the road. So um, it's very seductive. And by the time you get to that point that you're injured, you're kind of in a deep hole. Um, I think in my case, part of the problem is that no one was talking about this when I was in college. No one was telling me 
you're under fueling. Like it wasn't even a conversation that you have to fuel the work you're doing as an athlete. It's mind blowing to me now because of the amount of emphasis that I put on fueling and recovery now as a grown woman. Gosh, I wish I knew that when I was in college. So I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful. And you've never had more food at your disposal. Too like imagine like all the times to like fuel. It's like those buffet style cafeterias. Think about how much fueling you could have done, right? Oh gosh, there's so much regret. There's so much regret for that cafeteria (laughs) food that I passed up on, honestly. But yeah, I I feel hopeful because I feel like this um, narrative, this story, is becoming mainstream. People are becoming aware that it's a super widespread problem, and it's completely not okay. We have to stop it. Um, I feel hopeful because. The women and and men of my generation are now growing into coaching roles and growing into leadership roles, and they can start to change the culture in that regard. Um, You know, I think it's it's just becoming a conversation that people are actually having nowadays. Gosh, I wish someone was having this conversation with me. But um, even me, I, I coach at my kids' school. I coach elementary age kids, and I'm talking to them about the importance of going home and eating their good supper because they need those muscles to grow. So I think, I hope that it's culturally shifting. Absolutely. And I can imagine a situation, again, this is, every person's experiences is is their own. And certainly, um, I'm not going to paint with a too broad a brush here, but I can certainly envision the situation where an injured athlete who's already experiencing some level of of, um, disordered eating once they're injured, I can see that ex- potentially exacerbating the problem, right? Oh. Because all of a sudden they're not being able to do the the the, the work, you know, the running or whatever that they were able to do before. So all of a sudden, like, there's not much they can control left. So if it's part of like a control anxiety um, issue at the root, all of a sudden, like, there's only one thing left. And if you're in that, if you're in a calories in, calories out mindset, all of a sudden you're not having the fitness that you had before. So, so it's like, all right, well, what am I going to do on the other side of this equation? I'm not saying that's how people should approach it, but there's plenty of people who do approach it that way. So I can imagine during, when you're in that injury, um, you know, state that all of a sudden that might make things even worse potentially. Matt, that is so true. And I'm so glad you said that because someone who's in this psychology of like, I have to work out to earn my meals and and then suddenly you're not working out anymore, you're certainly absolutely not eating enough to fuel your recovery. Um, I can remember, I can look back to journals from when I was recovering from injury, recovering from surgery, and the recovery was going very, very slow for me. It was going very poorly. And it's because I wasn't eating enough food at all for my body to even exist, much less to heal. And like, oh my gosh, if I could go back to that 20-year-old Jackie, I would give her a hug. I would give her a pepperoni pizza. I would tell her that she has to eat food if she wants to be healthy. She wants to run fast. Um, That is so important for athletes to understand that just because you're not training when you're injured, you must keep fueling to fuel that recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny. I know it's not like at the same time, like you don't say like, I can imagine people saying like, okay, well, wait, hold on a second. Like I should eat the the exact same way when I'm running 60 miles a week than when I'm running zero miles a week. It's like, okay, no, like that's being too reductive, right? It's not like 
obviously like you have to fuel the exercise you're doing. And that's yeah. part of the point, right? It's like you're fueling the exercise you're doing. So, hey, if you're doing some awesome things and you have to have like some awesome fuel, right? Yeah. If like, if you're taking a step back from training, like, yeah, maybe you're not having as quite as much, mm-hmm. but like, it doesn't mean you're going the other end either. You know, so I think that sometimes these these conversations get so polarized, like with kind of like straw man arguments. It's like, no, hold on. Like, that's not you're not arguing with in good faith. Now, I'm now I'm creating a straw man argument. But either way, I think I'm I'm trying at least hopefully my point is somewhat clear. Yeah, I think it it just feels important for me to add that, like um, with disordered eating and exercise, you know, over exercising, it's um, it can be a mental disorder. Like it's a it's a psychological problem. And that's great. And someone can, you can tell someone a thousand times you need to eat and they can't do it. And, um, I think it's important to recognize, like, it's a lot deeper than just like pick up the fork and eat the pasta. It's like, you know, it's a real, um, psychological disorder and those people need our compassion and they need our support and help for sure. It's not an easy thing to overcome. That's a great point. And I, and I appreciate you saying that. And we've said this in the podcast so many times, but you never know, like someone might be a first time listener to this podcast and you, and you might think like, how hey, come Matt didn't talk about that? And like, I'm so glad you brought that up because it, you're 100% right. That's an inarguable point. And it's, it is, it's, it's so important. It's also important for the coaches to understand this as well. And as you mentioned, like, Hey, hopefully this next, this next era of coaches will have been steeped in the you know, the, the tradition of like, these were the mistakes of the past and now we've learned from them. So hopefully we can put them uh, to use in the future. And I think, again, this is like a two birds with one stone issue, right? It's like, you can make people more durable and better performers. Like, yeah. hey, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, this is, this is like, this is exactly the whole, this is the holy grail of like, of things that we want to bring to our athletes. Oh my gosh, it's more than that. And you're supporting their longevity in the sport. You're supporting their overall well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's so fundamental. It's so important. All right. So talk to me about, I guess, one last thing. So you transferred to CU for your senior year. Um, oh, we don't no, have to spend too much time on this. Incorrect. but That's incorrect. I ran, Graduate school? Yes. I had a red-shirted season okay. um, from undergrad, and I took that red shirt to CU when I was a graduate student. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I was thinking like your last year of, of schooling, but like, of course, for you, that wasn't gra- That wasn't your senior year. It was your graduate school. All right. So you go to CU, my like track nerd friends are going to be like, hey, we didn't ask this question. So going from a division two school to CU, what was that process like just in terms of like the recruitment? Like were you, was this more like they had my program and I walked on again or what, what was that process like? Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, I don't think I was recruited. I mean, I don't have a great memory, but I think I was asking them if I could come out and play. Um, I don't think they were asking me to join the team. I mean, there's so many talented runners at CU and the team is so deep. Um, So I think I was asking them if they had room for me to join in. Um, But it was fun and it was amazing. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be connected into the the CU running community. Even now, I still see my friends from CU out on the trails. I run into Sarah Vaughn or, or Jenny Simpson. And it's just, it's really fun to have been a part of that. Um, even though I didn't have success running at CU, um, a lot of my friends and peers did. So um, it's definitely a different environment, D1 to D2, for sure. Um, that was interesting to experience, but yeah. Last question about college running. I just, 
being on a track with elite athletes for the first time is like a jaw dropping experience, right? <laughs> I think just like any sport, like when you're with the best of the best and you're right next to them, just physically as they're doing the endeavor. And I guess you probably say, th- say something about music. Like if you were sitting like on a piano bench next to someone playing the piano at an unbelievably high level, like it's, it's something you don't forget. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I've had that experience luckily from a, from a track perspective, um, not as a, not as a good runner, but just, I just have been in odd places at odd times. It's astounding to witness. So when you were on this team with some incredibly good runners, who turned into professional runners and the like, what was that experience like for you? And, and how did it change how you viewed like either the sport itself or your own running or or things like that? Cause I can, I can imagine it having a tangible effect, especially coming from uh, a lower tier uh, college or university. Yeah. I mean, there were still, I should say, extremely talented athletes where I ran at Truman state university as well. Um, But coming to see you, I think seeing that these athletes were going on to be professionals and Olympians, it maybe did change my perspective on what was possible. Like, oh, maybe that's available to me too. Um, maybe I could try that too. So, um, yeah, I think being being in the presence of really amazing athletes like that can change your perspective on what's possible. And here you are still living in Boulder today. All right. So you said before that like post-college, you need to take to take a step away. Can you um, I guess expand on that point? And when, when did it become clear to you, first of all, that you needed to do that? Mm-hmm. And what were some of the reasons that you just internally you said, OK, enough is enough? Um, I, it wasn't a choice, really. I had a knee surgery. Um, at the end of my time at CU because I just had an injury that wasn't healing. So I was very young and way too young to be having a knee surgery, but that definitely put the brakes on the whole operation. It all came crashing down. Like, look, you are not in any condition to be running at all, much less running and racing at a high level. Um, it all came crashing down pretty fast, but some very beautiful things, of course, came out of that. So um, I was living in a co-op in Boulder, in a cooperative, and this was one of the most amazing and transformational experiences of my life. I lived, um, and my husband lived there too, we weren't married at the time, but it was a house with 13 people, and they were all some of the most weird and wonderful people that I've ever met in my life, and they cared absolutely zero about running or about sports. They knew absolutely zero about me as an athlete. And in fact, you know, we, we had like a shared kitchen and a shared living room space that people would joke, like passing each other. They would say like sports and they would high five, like they would make fun of athletes and living in their presence (laughs) was so wonderful for me. Like I had to get completely out of that culture of running. Um, Another thing that was really pivotal about living in the co-op is that we prepared our meals together. Um, like someone would cook dinner every night. And so suddenly I was surrounded by normal people eating normal meals. And it was so therapeutic and healing for me to see like, oh, this is what normal people are doing outside of the world of elite running. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was that was what it all looked like when it came crashing down as I was in this like, 
beautiful, amazing cocoon of the co-op that helped me see beyond the world of sports and actually poke fun at the world of sports. And that helped me really move through that time. So walk me through the steps leading back to your return in terms of like from a timeline perspective and just the idea of like, hey, at this point, you don't have to run. Obviously, you've been active your whole life, so I'm sure you wanted to be active to some degree, but that doesn't have to be running. So once the healing process had finished up or maybe at some point during the healing process, walk me through the steps of when running came back and why. Um, I guess I should say like running never fully went away, like running seriously went away. But, um, after, you know, during that time, after the injury and when I finished up at CU, um, I tinkered in triathlon for a little bit because I love, I love triathlon. I have swimming and biking in my toolkit. So that was kind of fun. And I didn't have any, um, with all those injuries in college, you must've been cross training like a mad woman during, yeah, the, exactly, <laughs> during that time. Exactly. But it was fun because I didn't, there was no expectation or pressure. I didn't have any skin in the game. Um, and I was still pretty fast. That's and a great so point. It was fun to get out there. And so I tinkered in triathlon a little bit. I coached with a women's triathlon team, which was really an amazing experience. Um, and then I, I started tinkering around in trails a little bit because for the same reason, it was like, you couldn't care about your mile splits when you're running straight up a mountain. Um, it just felt very liberating to be out on the trails because I couldn't compare it to what I was doing previously. So, um, I never really stopped running except for like in that chapter when I was on crutches and rehabbing. Right. But I took a time away from being serious and structured and competitive with it. Um, so that, that chapter of just kind of run for fun, um, it lasted pretty long. I mean, even when I was pregnant with my daughter, she's now almost 10 years old, um, all the way through, um, my pregnancy with my son, he's now seven. I didn't have a big appetite for training or racing all the way through those years. So I would say this most recent chapter just started about five years ago when I got back into running more seriously and um, training in a more structured way. This is so interesting. So first of all, like from, from a parent, like parent to parent perspective, our kids are basically the same age. My kids are 11 and eight. I love so it. I can relate yeah. to this so much. Um, so especially as you were helping other athletes, why do you think the itch to compete didn't come during that period, but did come later, right? Like obviously at that time, you didn't know when or if it would ever arrive, right? We know now, yeah. but looking back with hindsight being potentially 2020, why do you think it didn't hit a little earlier? Um, I think I was too hung up on not being able to run as fast as I could before. Like I knew that I wouldn't be able to run. Uh, I wouldn't be able to be anywhere close to my 10 K PR. And that bothered me. And I wasn't going to be able to have fun in that context because I wasn't as fast. So I needed to overcome that. And I think, um, you know, when you're a parent, you, the, you get a clean slate, you get a clean slate, like you set new parenthood PRs. And uh, especially with trail running, like there was no way to compare to previous Jackie or my previous times. So I think it was, I was still stuck in this mindset of like, ah, I'm not as fast as I was. This is no fun. And I needed to grow out of that. Running comes back into your life. You're a parent of two. 
at this point, they're kind of past the toddler stage. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the idea of really investing in running in terms of like, hey, I have goals and I want to race and I want to compete and things like that are really percolating inside of you. What about not just trail running? Because you've kind of already answered that question a little bit. But where you live, the trails are just so ubiquitous and who would want to take advantage of them. But at the same time, why ultra running? Right. Because all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm having a hard time running and staying healthy. Hey, I got an idea. Let's go run 100 miles. See how that goes. So like, what about ultra running? I guess it maybe didn't hit right away. But like, what about what was the allure behind ultra running once you start to kind of more invest and really get kind of sucked back into the uh, the running and competition mindset? Um, the interesting thing, Matt, is that my whole entire life, I've always been drawn to the longest distance. So when I was a kid, like in elementary school, and mile was the longest you could race, I was going to race the mile. And then in cross country, it was 5K. And then in college, it was 10K. So like, I've just always been so drawn to long distance. And I've always had this feeling like um, it's what suited my body. Like I had this gear that could go all day. And I've known that since I was a kid, that like something about that um, that's how I work. And so I've been, I was always very curious about ultra distances. And for some reason, I just always had this feeling that, um, I could do it. I was interested to see if that was so. That is exciting. So did you ever like during your college days, did you ever like kind of extend the long runs or like, did you have a you know, it was one thing to like kind of go, go in the competition and be like, all right, I want to do the 10K or the, the 5K as well. You know, it's obviously another thing to be like, all right, we're running, you know, these longer, longer runs on the weekends and things like that. Did you, did you love those experiences or yearn for more? I know we, I've talked to some people who like secretly were like, and I'm going to talk to Andy Wacker who went to see yeah. you. Yeah. He was yeah. like, yeah, I wouldn't tell Whitmore. I just would like escape into the mountains and not tell anybody and stuff like that. Like, did, was there any of that in your background? Uh, no, I absolutely loved, loved long runs. I've always loved long runs. Um, yeah, it's just, it's my favorite day of the week is long run. So it's just something about that uh, works well with my physiology and my psychology. I don't know. I want some of that. I'm like, I'll yeah. have what she's having. <laughs> I feel like the exact opposite. I'm like, I like, once I hit like Tuesday, I start dreading like the long run that I know is coming my way, like in a few days. <laughs> No, I think it's like the long run is where you you most commonly like tap into flow state and you get to cover the most terrain. You get to eat the most snacks. So to me, long run is the best. I have to, I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> I'm not there. Hopefully I'll be there someday. But obviously it works for you, right? It's, 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 why, it's why, you know, you've made the, the course selection, sorry, the race selections that you've made and, and progressed yeah. in your career the way you have. Um once racing came back into your life and you started taking it like as you know taking it more seriously and really invested in it was there any moment that you can remember as either a paradigm shifting moment or aha moment where like it clicked and you're like oh like maybe that was the first glimpse of what could potentially be in your future like do you remember anything along those lines or was it purely you know kind of step by step and like you know small hill by small hill I, I think it's small hill by small hill. There was like, oh my gosh, to me, when I think about running, it's like this, this lifelong magnum opus where every day you're just adding one more page to this big collection, this big book that you've written. And so 
I can't think of a real watershed moment where I thought like, oh, this is it. Um, it just happens like every single day in this completely um, imperceptible way because it's just, it's microscopic. And then you look down and you have a 30-year volume of training that you've done all of a sudden. Yeah. Or you all of a sudden you look at a race result or you finish a race or maybe you're like halfway through a race and you're standing next to a legend and you're like, <laughs> hey. Look at this. Look who I'm beating. Look who I'm passing. Right. And things like that. Right. Like, I guess were there were there certain races like I like you look back at your, you know, ultra sign up sheet. You see them certain races. You're like, wow, like this, this race obviously went really well. Like um, I went through, I've gone through this a couple of times, like in preparation for today. And like I'm looking at like, say, run rabbit, run 100. Like yeah. that was a, again, it's it's a, it's a high level race always mm -hmm. that year. There's a lot of names people recognize going down like the, the female list and you're pretty high up in that list. Yeah. Like maybe that race wasn't it, but was there any race or any workout or maybe just a conversation with David or a conversation with, with your peers where a result like Leadville 100 winner, like <laughs> that became like, not only like, wouldn't it be nice, but became like, even if it was just 1%, like that could happen. Like, I don't know if it's going to happen. But that could happen. Um, I don't know where that belief came from, that belief that like I thought I could win. Um, that has been within me for a long time. I don't know why. I, there's just like I've had this feeling that there's more juice in the tank. Like I'm not done yet. Um, I, I've had that feeling for a long time and I don't know where it came from. Certainly races like Run Rabbit bolstered my confidence like oh I can do this and I can hang with some really really accomplished women um so that definitely boosted my confidence but I've I've just had this little voice within me saying like I'm not done yet this is not my full potential yet it's still within me I think I'm capable of this outrageous thing that is really exciting I want Maybe, I don't know what my inner voice is telling me, but it's not telling me that. But it's it's a really cool thing to hear and that you're, you're tuning into it and and, and uh, trusting in that experience for sure. You had mentioned before um, we were speaking offline and I read this as, as well. Oh, I think Brian Meltzer did a great job talking about the Leadville 100 and you chronicling you and J.P. Kiblin who won mm -hmm. on the men's side. Um, you're talking about both of you. That, that's really well done. Go check that out at, out at uh, Outside. I think it's actually, no, it's not Outside. It was on uh, Trail Runner Mag. Okay. And um, in that, that there was like this gap. So you had these injuries in college and then you had this large gap where like the injuries kind of weren't, weren't prevalent. Mm -hmm. But recently, um, in the last couple of years, they've kind of returned in a way. So can you, t can you kind of detail what some of those injuries were and you talked about like the, the training overload, but you know, kind of what, what maybe led, to, I guess maybe the training did, but like what the injuries were and you know, what, what changes have had to be made and how you made those changes in a way that, you know, kept you invested and didn't keep, leave you crestfallen. Like, Oh my God, here we go again. Yes. No, I was crestfallen. Um, it was a huge bummer. So it was last summer. I was preparing for the Leadville 100 and I got a stress fracture in my femur instead. So um, I was absolutely devastated, not just to miss the race, but also as a parent, when you're on crutches, this is very problematic. Oh, like, yeah. You can't play kickball. You can't climb trees. You can't even get dinner. Oh, which leg was it? It was in my left leg. Which 
Oh, at least you could drive. Thank goodness. I could drive. I was thinking, like, if it was your right leg, you would have been like, I can't even drive a car. Yes. Yeah. So, like, not only was I (laughs) grieving the loss of my season and and I was so excited to race, but then suddenly I was like, whoa, I can't even take care of my dear people. So it was really, really challenging. We had to take up all these sedentary hobbies last summer, like cross-stitch and sewing instead of, like, mountain biking and hiking like we normally would. So, um, it was really hard. And I was very bummed because I had been something like 20 years since my last stress fracture. And so I felt like I had really cracked the code on that. And um, for it to crop up again, it felt surprising. It felt devastating. Um, and I think, you know, bone injuries, you rest and they heal and you get back to training again. But um, I think the harder thing for me was the psychological toll of that saying like, maybe I'm not actually cut out for this, or maybe I can't really Hmm. train like a champion. Um, My body can't tolerate this. So being able to like overcome that mental setback was really hard. Um, But I did it. I started training again and you're never going to believe what happened next. I got another stress fracture in the same (laughs) femur. And this isn't I, the Disney ending I wanted. That's what, that's not what I wanted you to say. It wasn't the <laughs> Disney ending. And man, not only was I so sad, I was like verging on embarrassed. Like, how can I have just overcome this? And now I broke the same damn femur. I was so sad. I was so mad. Um, but I wasn't done yet. It wasn't the end of my story. And so I leaned into my skills with cross training. And at that point, David and I revamped the approach. Like I wasn't going to get close to 70 miles a week anymore. Um, I was going to rely on doing my speed work on uphills instead of on flats. Um, I was going to be doing a lot of biking um, and it worked. Yeah. And let's see, I, Strava only goes back so far. I mean, in yeah. terms of like graphing things out, right? I think it's a mm-hmm. three month graph. So if you, someone goes on your Strava right now and I know you share a lot of stuff. I don't know if you share everything. Some people don't, but um, it seems like the riding kind of stayed between like 15 miles a week and 30 miles a week. Was it higher, you know, six months ago when maybe you're coming off the stress fracture um, or how has that changed over time over the past, like, you know, year or so? Oh yeah. The riding was higher when I was not able to run at all. Like when I was only biking, the, the bike or the biking volume was very high. And then as I transitioned back into running, it was sort of like, the running miles gradually increased and the biking time gradually decreased. So, um, yeah, now I guess if, if I'm healthy and I'm running strong, that running is makes up the meat of my training and biking is secondary to that for sure. I'm not a, I'm not actually a All strong right, so biker, but I do think it's fun. I'm guessing you're probably pretty good. <laughs> Um, no, but, no, I, I mean, considering what you do as a runner, but no, I, I, guess, I ride an old um, bike from like 1990 with a steel frame. And it's just like very liberating to have no skin in the game and, and just go out and, and cruise around on black beauty. I like that. You should like, you should like go all the way, get like a basket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's right. Really like you're riding with the, I see you out there. Like you got a lot of pictures. Like you're out there riding with your kids. You can throw some stuff in there, yeah. you know, some like, you know, little applesauce packets or whatever they're eating. You know, throw them back to them. Totally. Exactly. You're, you're getting the vibe for sure. That's it. As you're ramping. So let's, let's just go back to like what you mentioned a second ago, which was like when you're running healthy, 
the the biking is definitely taking a secondary piece. The mm-hmm. running is definitely the primary. So mm-hmm. when you're running healthy, what does a week look like? Does it like an average normal week look like for you in terms of like the days, like, I guess, take me day by day. Um, it looks like five days a week of running. So Monday might be an eight or 10 mile run with some hill strides. Um, Tuesday would be a workout day, which for me is typically hill work. Wednesday would be kind of an easy middle distance run. Thursday would be biking. Um, and that's kind of like flexing depending on how much energy and time I have and how's the weather. Like if it's a beautiful day, I might go ride for three hours. If it's snowing, I can like only tolerate an hour inside on the trainer. Um, so that just kind of flexes depending on the mood. Um, Fridays, I would get in my long run and Saturdays would be a shorter long run. And then Sunday would be a rest. All right. Walk me through the, all right. So what would be an example of a, a hill workout that you've done maybe a couple of times over the past several months? Yeah. Um, there's some classics that David likes to give like three minute hill repeats. That's like, that's like where you see God when you're out there doing these three minute hill repeats. Um, they're fun and horrible, um, all the way down to something as short as like a 90 second hill repeat, um, where you just, you know, you put in a strong sustained effort going up and then you have a rundown recovery. All right. On Wednesday is a medium ish long run. What does that mean? Like again, maybe eight or 10 miles. Okay. So similar to Monday, but without the strides. Yep. You got it. All right. So Friday and Saturday, you got the long run and then another like kind of like medium-ish long run. So what would, what would those usually entail? Um, it depends on where I'm at in a training block. So like my biggest runs leading up for Leadville, it was a big 30 mile run on trail with a ton of vert. And then doubling back the next day was a 10 mile run. And actually that day I had to take my kids along with me. They were on their bikes. And so it was on a bike path. Um, it would be common gotcha. to do and that's, that. And that's exactly a 65 mile week. So that was like the biggest week that you did looked exactly yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, another like back to back long run scenario could be like doing a 20 mile run on Friday and a 16 mile run on Saturday. Um, and generally for me, I would like do the bigger one on trails and try to beef it up with some vert and just spending a lot of time doing mountain miles and then do the next one you know, maybe less steep, less, less verdy on the second day. Now, how has mid run nutrition changed for you over several years? I know anyone listening to Swap podcast knows how much they fully endorse mid run nutrition, basically to the extent of like, whatever you can take without throwing up, take it. So, right. Like that, that's again, that's, that's, it's over as that's, that's taking it to the extreme. I'm purposely doing that, but that's kind of the vibe. Again, David's also my coach. So I, I, I know what I'm talking about in terms of some of his guidelines at the same time, this hasn't always been the case in terms of like just the prevailing wisdom of mid race nutrition. Again, we're long, we're long past the days of like the mid eighties, early nineties of like no one taking even water on the run, but how mm-hmm. has your mid run nutrition changed? Not just on race day, but in training. Yeah, I would say a big change for me is if I'm going to be out over an hour, I'm definitely taking some calories with me. Um, and thankfully, I have a pretty strong stomach. Like I, I can eat anything on the run. Even in Leadville, I was housing um, pizzas and all kinds of different food. But 
in training, I would say like, I would never fail to fuel a long run. And I would also consider fueling those runs that are going to be over an hour. All right. So let's talk about the fueling long run. Say you were going to do, I don't know, it's two and a half to three hours, maybe two and a half to three and a half hours. Right. Um, and if, if you're going out on a run like that, and it's not like super duper steep, right? So it's not like all of a sudden like, hey, I'm doing 15 miles, but it's taking me, you know, five hours or something yeah. like that, right? We're yeah. not running in Chamonix or something like that, right? So you're running for two and a half to three and a half hours. What would be normally what you're taking with you? Um, well, definitely like every week when I'm going out on my long runs, I'm rehearsing the exact fueling that I want to use in my upcoming race so that I have it super, super dialed on race day. So the most common things that I'm taking, I'm always taking tailwind and I generally have it concentrated. So I have a bottle with two scoops, 200 calories in there. Um, and I'll often take like more tailwind powder to refill a bottle as I go along. Um, I'll definitely be taking awesome sauce from spring energy. Like I love awesome sauce cause it has tons of calories and it goes down easy every single time. Um, I love fig bars. They're just um, fig bars. I don't know. <laughs> they're like the fig bars I put in my kid's lunchbox. But they're so good because they're like, again, more than two. So like the Fig Newtons or like is there like another another brand we're talking about? Well, they're not Fig Newtons because I, I have celiac disease, so I'm gluten-free. So I get the gluten-free fig oh. bars. But you can find them at gotcha. the store. They're easy to find. And they're in a little pack with two fig bars. And you can just mow them down really happily on the trails. So I eat a lot of fig bars. Um, and then once I start to get into longer, longer runs, I also take along mashed potatoes. And I put them in like a little um, pouch that you use to make your own baby food. I fill that up with mashed potatoes and then I carry that along in my pack. I love this. I love the mashed potatoes. I've never done that exact modality with yeah. the mashed potatoes. But I will say this. I have only run one ultra. I'm, I'm nowhere near like your level or probably most of the people listening to this podcast, but I will say one of my best memories from the the one ultra I've done was the pierogies at the aid station. I was putting them in every pocket I had and just taking them with me. They were fantastic. And just like the mashed potato goodness inside of those suckers, like they, they gave me life. So I, I fully endorse this mashed potato madness. Yes. I mean, like aid station food, the right food at the right moment, it can be transcendent. It sounds like you had a life-changing experience there with the pierogies. That's so good. The race wasn't life-changing, but the pierogies were. Exactly. I will say that. That's that was all, like all I could talk about when I came home. I was like telling my kids all about it. They couldn't wait to try it. <laughs> they didn't have the experience I had. I only just put it like that. Um, all right. Before we talk a little bit about the race, because we can't not talk about the race. Yeah. I do want to mention, do want to ask you real quick. You, at least it seems like... Um, have some really fun outdoor adventures with your kids, whether they're joining you and you're running and they're biking or you're all biking together, um, things like that. Again, I'm, I'm asking this question for two reasons. Um, first of all, I'm jealous and I want to know how you're doing this because I can't get my kids to do this sort of thing. But secondly, like how much of that is just something that you try to like inculcate into your family because it's something stuff that you enjoy? Oh my gosh, I could talk about this all day because nothing makes me happier than romping around in the mountains with my kids. Like it's the all time greatest thing. Um, I think we've just sort of made it our family culture. And it, it's been that way since they were little babies that like when we're outside, we're having fun and we're happy. Um, and somehow 
we have succeeded in convincing them that they like to do this stuff with us. So like, they are amazing. They, they're skiing, they're mountain biking, they're rock climbing, they're hiking. Um, you know, I, I think part of it, when they were babies, we just did uh, baby led hiking. So we would like go to a trail and let them take the lead. And, you know, our hike would be like 20 feet to a creek and then come back home. So like always keeping it really joyful for them. Um, same with skiing, like when they were learning to ski when they were little, like um, skiing was never going to be something scary or tearful, like just always keeping it super, super fun for them. And um, little by little, they've grown into total crushers. They're like hiking 14ers and totally out skiing and out biking me. So it's, oh my gosh, it's so joyful. It's really great. Man, it sounds like you did a you and your husband did a great job. I have so many regrets, <laughs> so many regrets. But this, I mean, kudos to you for making it happen. That is for sure. Okay, little Leadville talk, right? We got to do a little at least a little yeah. bit of race day talk. That's for sure. All right, so you go there, you step to the line. I will say on your Strava, it did seem like three or four days before the race. You had a little turned ankle there. So I guess how healthy were, again, we talked so much about injuries, but how healthy were you when you stepped to the line? Or was that, was that sort of the taper crazies settling in on like, on on, uh, the, the, I guess the nastiness of the ankle turn? Man, I'm going to tell you the truth. I had that ankle mummified in athletic tape. Like I, I can't tell you, I went out, I guess it was Tuesday morning before the race and it was a trail that I've run a hundred times. I could run it with my eyes closed and I have no idea what happened. But next thing I know, I'm looking up at the sky, just like, what the heck? <laughs> so I rolled my ankle and I wiped out really bad. And I came home like all bloody and covered in dust. And my husband's like, oh, Jay, why'd you do it? So um, I was definitely thinking about that ankle on the starting line and I had it taped up. But as soon as I started running, and I mean like mile one of that race, I knew that it was no problem and I knew I was going to have a great day. All right. Now you were shooting your shot early. You were up, you know, near the leaders um, right from the start. Uh, again, there was uh, some some names that people may recognize. Devin Yanko went out, went out strong, as she should. She's, you know, is a legend in this sport. Um, totally. She was up there. She had some hip issues. Actually, we had, I, had Stephanie, I was talking to Stephanie Flippin on the Relay podcast on group chat on Monday. It, was, it came out on Tuesday afternoon, and she talked about her Leadville experience because she was actually there to crew mm. Devin. Okay. But I was talking about how like she had a hip issue and and it had and had to pull and and rightfully so considering you know how she was feeling on that day, but here you are. Was it mile twenty seven? You're passing Devin Yanko, taking the lead. Walk me through that experience. And at that point, again, you're you're a quarter of the way into the quarter of the way into the race. But like at that point, the the early miles, the early you know, fun or anxious moments have passed, right? You're in it at that point completely. So walk me through that experience of taking the lead at this pinnacle race. And if that changed your mindset as at all uh, moving forward. Yeah. I mean, Dev, just Devin is such a legend. She's such a strong athlete and I really, really admire her. Um, and I knew she was super fit going into this race. And so, um, you know, I knew she was going to take it out and I was prepared to let her go with it. And, um, 
at the start and people were telling me, you know, lead woman five minutes up. And I was just thinking I, I need to let her go. Like I need to run my own race. And yeah, when I passed her, she was sitting um, in a chair with her crew and I assumed she was going to jump back into the race just because she's so strong. So I tried to give her a little encouragement, like, come on, we've got this. And I assumed she was following me um, until I got word that she dropped. But um, at that moment when I passed her, it was a little scary, but I felt so strong. I felt so relaxed. And the thought entered my mind of like, I'm winning the Leadville 100. Um, and I just ran with that for the rest of the day. All right. So did it did it affect you at all or did it embrace, did you embrace it? Did it like, wait, I that, those are, those are big time words, right? All of a sudden you're in the lead and you've run really well at a lot of races, but at least looking through your ultra sign, it doesn't seem like you were in this position yes. that often. So <laughs> to walk me through um, just the, the mentality of like, all right, I'm the leader now. And it's not just that, like, I can't even say local 5k because you live in Boulder. So the, the local 5k is filled with Olympians. Yes. So I guess the leader of any race where you live is, 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 a, is a huge moment. Yes. Um, no, Matt, it's, I have not been in this position before. Like this was absolutely a breakthrough moment in a breakthrough race for me, but I was not scared. I was not scared taking the lead. I felt so good physically and mentally. I knew it was my day. I knew it was my day. And I just, um, taking the lead only gave me more energy and more motivation. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I just went, went with it. Now, Leadville is a brutal race. You know, you're, you know, you have, it's, it's a turn, people who don't know, it's a turnaround race. You get to 50, you turn around, is it Winfield? You turn around yeah. at Winfield. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you have to, you go up, right? So is it to Hope Pass and down and then turn around and go back up and then back down. So your, your whole body, I'm assuming at that point, is like, all right, thanks, buddy. Like, we got 40 miles left. Great. Um, yeah. So talk to me about how you navigate going out with intention, shooting your shot early and just the natural pacing decline that's going to happen at a race like this, right? Like you, yeah. it's not like you're going to negative split the Leadville 100, right. right? So talk to me about like the pacing strategy and how that plays into the fact that like, you're just going to be running slower at the end of the race, no matter what you do and how you, and how do you strategize around that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, David reminded me of this in the pre-race call that, if you're staying below your lactate threshold and you're in this happy aerobic zone as you're running, there's no reason to go slower than that. And that's why I felt confident taking it out that fast because I felt like I was in this very relaxed, comfortable aerobic zone. And I held on to that all the way over Hope Pass. It was just this thinking of like, um, stay steady, stay steady, don't blow up. And I was hurting. I was hurting very, very bad. Um, like everyone is going to be hurting over Hope Pass. I don't care who you are. Um, but my thought, yeah, was just that. Like everybody's hurting. It's okay. Like everyone is suffering right now. Just You just have to keep suffering better, you know? So just constantly trying to stay within oh, myself. I like that. Suffering better. That, yeah. That's a t-shirt waiting to happen. <laughs> I love that. So, um, you know, like I tried to run really well when I could, like on sections that were runnable and I felt great. I tried to take advantage of that. Um, I tried to hike when things were too steep and I could feel myself getting into that anaerobic 
zone, I backed it off. So I just felt like I took it one mile at a time. Like, how can I best run this mile, you know? All right. So later in the race, maybe like the last 30 miles or so, um, how much is it keeping it in that below lactate threshold, you know, high level zone two or however you want to phrase it, pacing versus just like, hey, I'm just going to run as fast as these tired legs can take me? Oh, gosh. Um, I couldn't run any faster. I, I didn't have any ability to run fast. Like my my legs were just not functional at that moment. It was definitely like a death march situation. I wasn't having to like restrain myself <laughs> in any possible way. Um, yeah, I was just trying to move as well as as best as I could over the terrain. It's still kind of technical at the end. You have some really like challenging climbs and descents. So I was just trying to move as best I could, even though my quads and my legs were completely dysfunctional. Yeah. Talk to me about how you pro- how how your legs were working in those moments, at, you know, in the, in the last you know quarter of the race, maybe the last 10 percent of the race and what adjustments you had to make. And this is something that like I know I've had trouble with is like again, as someone who hasn't done this a lot, like mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, like this is all locked up or then this is giving me trouble. And like, I'm, I have trouble navigating that situation. Obviously you don't have the, the troubles that I have, but it's tricky. I would think for anybody having to navigate the, like, this part isn't working great. How do I work around it kind of vibe? So t- walk me through what happened for you at Leadville in terms of those sorts of things. Gosh. Yeah. I think that is, that is hard for anybody. I, um, I felt like I was still running pretty well. And I had, I had a decent stride when I was with my first pacer, Kim, she took me all the way through to outward bound. And I felt like we were moving really well. Um, and then I picked up my husband, Steve for the next section, which was a very steep climb and descent. And that's when my legs were kind of shutting down. Like, um, I did not have juice for the climb and I did not have juice for the descent. So by the time I got to my last pacer with 13 miles to go, it was my sister. Um, It was really just like a shuffle and just trying to move as best I could. I had one calf that was like completely locked up. Um, But I was sort of thinking like, look, it hurts if I'm walking and it hurts when I'm running. So I might as well run. Man, it's it's amazing the bargains we make with ourselves when we're running. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is so funny. Um, all right. Well, hey, and here you are. You were you were at that point two hours ahead. I mean, you were not only leading, mm-hmm. you were leading by a monstrous margin. The video has now been seen by a lot of people. If you haven't seen it, please go check it out on Jackie's Instagram and so many Instagrams in the running world. Um, you crossed the finish line. The just walk me through just the you know, whatever was going on in your head. I mean, you, you, you emoted so beautifully. I'd love to hear what was going on internally. I mean, in that last mile, 99 to 100, you get to pick up your whole crew to run together. And so there was just this massive welling up of emotion. Um, I will just get emotional thinking about it now, seeing my husband again and Kim and all these people who had been out there with me all day, getting me through this. And so in that last mile was just this really overwhelming sense of we have done this. Um, They were there with me. And um, I had been thinking about that finish line for many, many hours at that point. I had been thinking about ripping that tape for many hours. And so by the time I got there, um, 
I knew what a huge moment this was for me. And I was not in the mood to play small. Um, I, it was not a time for moderation. It was a time to absolutely lose my mind. Um, and that's what I went for. It just the most like primal and raw emotion within me. Like, um, it it was unbelievable. There was, there was no reason to hold back. That was an absolutely life-changing moment for me. And I wasn't going to celebrate in any way less than that. It's beautiful. It was inspiring. It was just, it was just fantastic to witness. And, you know, even from afar, even through like my phone, like it was absolutely awesome. So Jackie, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for sharing it with us today. It is absolutely phenomenal. I know people are going to take a lot from this. You know, there's not many people who win races like Leadville who are dedicated amateur runners like everyone who listens to this podcast. So it really is a special thing to witness. And thank you for sharing it all today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for talking. And um, yeah, I hope your listeners can glean some inspiration and keep working toward toward their goals too.